One of the fascinating things about the American Civil War is that there's just so many things about it that does not make sense. So many things that present problems so that there is always uh, something that is yet to be said on a single subject. There's always a problem for which, after all, there is no simple answer and probably no answer at all. And one of the things that has always puzzled me and which I've done a good deal of thinking is the matter of Southern secession. It simply does not make sense in some ways, and so I thought this evening I would talk to you a little while, perhaps from a little different point of view, my efforts to try to answer the question. The election of Abraham Lincoln as President of the United States in 1860 precipitated the secession movement in the Southern states. With South Carolina leading the way, <coughs> 10 other states seemingly reached the conclusion that further connection with the North meant the destruction of their existing social economic order. They viewed it as a case of submission or secession. Yet historians agree that Abraham Lincoln was a ma very moderate man of the old Henry Clay Whig views who had on various occasions gone out of his way to assure the Southern people that he would in no way interfere with their existing institutions. He had stated bluntly that were he given all power, he would not know what to do about slavery. Even Alexander H. Stevens had said that Lincoln was, quote, just as good, safe, and sound a man as Mr. Buchanan and would administer the government as far as he individually was concerned, just as safely for the South and as honestly and faithfully in every particular. Historians have further noted <coughs> that with the Congress and courts opposed to Lincoln and his principles, Lincoln would have been powerless to do harm, that businessmen everywhere were against further sectional strife, and that the abolitionists viewed the Republican Party, quote, as temporizing, compromising, and unworthy of being trusted with the anti-slavery interests. Professor Arthur Cole has even accused the secessionists of being moved by abstractions, not realities. The most thoroughgoing champion of Southern rights, he says, seldom even hinted that they saw specific dangers looming over the horizon. Now, with these facts in mind, one may reasonably ask whether the Southern fears were justified and whether secession was a rational move. Were Southern social economic institutions actually threatened? Was slavery at any time in danger from Lincoln's administration? Or had men's emotions simply run away with reason and their leadership proven inadequate? Now, the answers which historians have given to these questions vary very widely. James Ford, Ford Rhodes and Charles Francis Adams both say that the alleged grievances of the South were mere abstractions. Both talk of the repeated Northern submissions to the arrogant demands of the South. Professor Cole thinks, as did the late Charles Sidner of Duke, that Southern action was the product of an inferiority complex. The section their section had become a permanent minority, and its sensitive pride, quote, in grasping for defensive mechanisms, preferred sublimated abstractions to realities. Professor Alan Nevins 
seems to imply that the South was tricked into hasty action by its leaders. As he puts it, the heavy responsibility for the failure of America in this period rests with Southern leadership, which lacked imagination, ability, and courage. Professor Roy Nichols merely says that Southerners in a state of hyper-emotion, moved by pride, self-interest, a sense of honor and fear, rushed into action. They were numerous enough and effective enough to force secession. Now with attention fixed on events as they developed in secession days, there is evidence to support each and all of these views. The proud Southerner was undoubtedly had become oversensitive as he saw his section becoming a permanent minority. His sectional leadership was indeed as futile in giving sound direction as was that of the North. Yet, can the matter of Southern fears and actions be judged simply by the immediate situation? Did men act only because of Lincoln's election? Or must we seek the real reason for Southern re reactions through a clear understanding of what the term an irrepressible conflict meant in the region in which the Republican Party itself was born and to which it made its appeal? Southern reaction to Lincoln's election does indeed make little sense unless we understand the simple fact that the Republican victory meant Northern endorsement of certain attitudes basic in Republican thought and the increase of power to give concrete action to them. And since the slaveholder and the institution of slavery played so large a part in the weakening of the old parties and in the creation of new ones, a brief look at some of the implicit assumptions long made in what became the Republican stronghold and the recent developments which again had brought them to, the, uh, to these assumptions to the surface may help us, I think, to understand our problem. The region to be considered stretches from New England to Pennsylvania and spreads across upper New York and westward along the Great Lakes. The period of time is from 1815 onward. And because slavery was both a labor system and a moral issue, the attitudes to be noticed have to do largely with wealth, its creation and just distribution, and with sin and its eradication. Now, you may begin to think that I'm going to take you on a long trip around Robin Hood's barn, but. Stay with me and I'll get you back to secession in a very few minutes. In the year 1815, a new era opened for the whole Western world of which the United States was a part. The almost continuous state of war, which had involved all the nations of Europe for centuries, and which had embroiled the American people throughout our colonial and early national days, came to a sudden end. For the next hundred years, from 1815 to 1914, there would be peace. True, there would be local struggles, but no more worldwide wars as there had been for 300 years. Three generations of fortunate men who lived about the Atlantic Basin could now center their thoughts and their efforts undisturbed on peaceful endeavors. The matchless age which then began was characterized by the rapid accumulation and use of capital for economic ends. 
by a revolutionary technical advance based on the perfecting of the steam engine for industry and communication, by the intensification of national feelings and activities, and by the spread of a deep democratic humanitarian impulse. The fusing of these forces and maturing of these forces produced what you and I have called the modern world. For the United States as a whole, the century of peace gave the first opportunity to turn away from Europe, to exploit the vast undeveloped riches of one of Earth's richest continents, and to adjust our institutions and our social economic ways and values to the needs of the age and to those of our continent. For the American South, it meant the rise of the Cotton Kingdom, but no great repudiation of existing institutions and values. It was merely the expansion of an agricultural life that had been developed already in tobacco and rice and so forth into the production of cotton. But for the region in which the Republican Party was to have its hold, it meant a series of changes, revolutionary in degree, that left few institutions, few relationships and values untouched. Within little more than the lifespan of a single generation, a belt stretching from Massachusetts to Pennsylvania was remade in physical appearance, in its social arrangements, in its economic interests, and in the values which its people held. Men's bodies were being pushed pell-mell into the modern world of finance industrial capitalism, while their minds were left behind to struggle with the problems of adjusting the old to the new. In that struggle, every existing institution, every old relationship and value was forced to answer as to its fitness to serve the new day. Every new development was asked to measure its merits against the old tacit assumptions that men had been making. And a strange new hospitality to ideas went with these demands. And men and women set about with feverish haste to make realities conformed to American ideals. This is particularly true where wealth, created by new methods, fell into new hands and thereby created new and strange relationships between those who toiled and those who accumulated. In the region of our special interest, these new forces operated among a people peculiarly sensitive to moral, social, and economic values. Work, whether among the Puritans of Massachusetts or the Quakers of Pennsylvania, had always had the dignity of a calling. God, wrote one Puritan divine, doth call every man and woman to serve him in some particular employment. The great governor of the world had appointed every man his proper post and province, and let him be ever so active out of his sphere, he will be set at a great loss if he do not mend his own vineyard and keep his own province. Wealth, in turn, was the product of hard work at one's calling, of thrift, moderation, sobriety, and foresight. It was a trust. It was to be gained and used not for greater self-indulgence, but for the glory of God. If God show you a way in which you may lawfully get more than in another way, and you refuse to do this, wrote another, you cross one of the ends of your calling, and you refuse to be God's steward. Diligence, wrote William Penn, 
is a virtue and laudable among men. It is a discreet and understanding applications of oneself to business and avoids the extremes of idleness and of drudgery. Frugality, he added, is a virtue too, better way to be rich, for it is less toil and temptation. A penny saved is a penny got." Unquote. Such were the traditional attitudes toward work and wealth in a region where men, employers and employees, had long stood on equal ground and bargained freely with each other in respect to wages and hours and so forth. They had thus been strangely prepared to accept enthusiastically the new finance industrial capitalism as it came rushing forward and to quarrel bitterly with it. There would be much of confusion and angry strife, but men's tacit assumptions would be made clear and their convictions would be deepened. The addition of old world idealists largely to the city of New York and New York State would only increase the difficulty. For our purposes, the first significant result of the coming of finance industrial capitalism to this region in the years between 1815 and 1844 was the rise of a new and powerful group of business leaders and the creation of a new and uniquely dependent body of workers. In the beginning, they developed with the textile industry. A decline in commerce made capital available in scattered cotton mills about wherever water power could be found. Overexpansion and depression soon weeded out the least efficient and left the textiles largely in the hands of those who had been able to secure the greatest capital and the most efficient management. Profits soared. Successful groups widened their efforts, bought up power sites, built machine shops, laid out and built whole factory towns, speculated in lands, projected canals and railroads, and found use for their surplus capital in banking and in insurance. Enterprising merchants in Boston, New York City, and Philadelphia found equal opportunities for wealth in the revival and expansion of trade and in the decline of competition from the older centers. Families in both of these fortunate groups widely intermarried. Their harsh old Calvinistic beliefs gave way to more rational and dignified ones, and their political needs found expression in the conservative doctrines of the Whig Party. A new aristocracy of growing wealth and power had come into being. But industry had done more than produce capitalists. The young folks who came down from the country to work in the mills soon learned that their move meant considerably more than just an escape from fields and kitchens. Long hours at varied tasks in the open air were one thing. The same hours in a poorly ventilated, lint-filled room spent at a single task was something else. They also learned that bitter competition between factories in periods of depression meant longer hours, more spindles to tend, and reduced wages. To protest or to strike brought lockouts and blacklists. The alternatives were to accept or to leave. By 1844, most New England girls had chosen the latter course, and French and Canadian girls had taken their places. Workers in the great commercial centers fared little better. According to the working man's advocate, they were, quote, despised and trampled upon by the drones and minnens of fortune. 
The capitalists, complained the New York State mechanic, have taken to bossing all the mechanical trades, while the practical mechanic has become a journeyman, subject to be discharged at every pretended myth of his purse-proud employer. A moneyed aristocracy, they said, was hanging over the worker like a mighty avalanche, threatening annihilation to every man who dared to question the capitalist right to enslave and oppress the poor and the unfortunate. Workers looked round them upon the princely palaces and the gaudy equipages of the rich, who consumed the fruits of the poor man's labor without adding to the common stock a grain of wheat or a blade of grass. And when the right to organize was denied by the courts, workers solemnly proclaimed that the freemen of the North are now on a level with the slaves of the South, with no other privilege than laboring that drones may fatten on your lifeblood." Industry had thus produced a situation in regard to wealth and labor repugnant to every assumption and value on which the existing social economic order traditionally rested. Here was wealth, greater than ever known before. Wealth gained not by men as producers, but as masters of capital, middlemen, investors, and speculators. Wealth that held the living of the many in its hands, but which had largely lost the sense of stewardship. And here was work that lacked dignity, wages fixed without bargaining, regulation and control in place of the old freedom. This was a situation which could not long in this region go unchallenged by those capable of disinterested thinking. The factory workers did, after a time, complain and strike. The mechanics of Philadelphia and New York organized, as they said, quote, to ward off those numerous ills which result from an unequal and excessive accumulation of wealth and power into the hands of the few. But as Professor Common says, this was not so much the modern alignment of wage earners against the employer as it was one of the poor against the rich, the worker against the owner. The workers, in fact, were only expressing concern over a situation that had already, already aroused men and women all over the region whose original point of view regarding wealth and work had not been altered. Among them, a deep feeling of unrest had grown as the old order lost ground. Their moral indignation had stirred as they saw, quote, the few living in splendor on the wealth produced by the sweat of other men's faces. Something was bitterly wrong in a land that professed both democracy and Christianity. Savagely they turned on the new rich. Those who had prospered became a symbol of all that was wrong. Their crime was that they had accepted the modern world and all its ways. They had betrayed, according to the old pattern, their stewardship. Here, wealth is new and mainly in the hands of men who have scrambled for it adroitly, said the Reverend Theodore Parker, the greatest preacher in all New England. As a class, they are narrow, vulgar, and conceited. They are never to be found on the moral side of any great question. They never ask what can be done for labor, 
but only what can be done with it. And he warned that if powerful men will not write justice with black ink on white paper, ignorant and violent men will write it on the soil in letters of blood and illuminate their crude legislation with burning castles, palaces, and towns. Most spokesmen assumed, as did Orestes Bronson, whom Notre Dame, you remember not long ago, took from his grave in Detroit and brought to bury on, bury on their campus. Orestes Brownson said that all wealth was produced, quote, by the toil and sweat, skill and industry of the workers. All wealth, said Samuel Allen, is the product of labor and belongs of right to him who produced it. Yet how small a part of the product of its labor falls to the laboring class. How large a part of it is wasted and worse than wasted upon the pride and vanity and voluptuousness of those who produce no wealth and render society no equivalent for what they consume. The rich were exploiting the laborer, looking down on him as a vulgar creature, while they pocketed the proceeds of his labor, filled the high places of society, rode in carriages, sat on cushioned seats, and feasted their dainty palates on luxuries culled from every clime. Thus, an artificial state of society had been created in which a race of non-producers who rendered no equivalent to society for what they consume constitute a new sort of aristocracy of more uncompromising character than the feudal or any landed aristocracy ever can be." Unquote. Sympathy for the workers was equally intense. There is not a state's prison or a house of correction in all New England where the hours of labor are so long, the hours for meals so short, and the ventilation so neglected as in the cotton mills with which I am acquainted wrote Dr. Josiah C. Curtis in his report to the American Medical Association. Could any beast of burden bear the duration of toil imposed on the factory operatives, asked one editor, and then added, how much better is a horse than a woman? Where is humanity, asked another, and answered, it is swallowed up in gain for the almighty dollar, and for this, poor girls are enslaved and kept in a state little better than the machinery which when it gets out of repair is taken to the repair shop and restored. But not so the human machinery. That is kept in constant motion until the motive power is brought to a stop. And what of it then? It is laid to one side and new human machinery procured. And what became of the girl who was laid aside? The Daily Democrat tells us that while those who reap the profits drop their heads on cologne-scented handkerchiefs in prayer, and thanksgiving every Sabbath day, the poor mill girl came to Boston to die in a brothel. Instinctively, the word slavery came into use, and comparisons began to be made. At the South, wrote one editor, the master lives in opulence on the labor of his colored slaves, whose situation, uh, simulation to exertion is too often the driver's lash but who are almost universally provided with the absolute necessity of life in all stages of their existence. At the North, the master has a lash more potent than the whip thong to stimulate the energies of his white slaves, 
fear of want. And because the northern worker did not see his chains, he was nonetheless a slave. Instead of simple chains, said this writer, he wears a net that hampers every fiber of his body and every faculty of his soul. Instead of bearing a single wrong, he is crushed by a boundless system of iniquity. Both the northern and the southern master added another, aimed at, and accomplished the same end. Quote, obtaining labor and service without rendering labor and service in return. How can you reckon the one more atrocious than the other? Many, in fact, did not do so. As one man put it, when capital has gotten 13 hours of, of labor daily out of a being, it can get nothing more. It would be a very poor speculation in an industrial point of view to own the operatives, or the trouble and expense of providing for times of sickness and old age would be more than counteract the, the difference between the price of wages and the expense of board and clothing. The far greater number of fortunes accumulated by the North in comparison with the South shows that hiring labor is more profitable capital than slave labor. Wages, added Bronson, is a cunning device of the devil for the benefit of the tender conscience who would retain all the advantages of the slave system without the expense, trouble, and odium of being a slaveholder. Nor did the man who moved out in, of this industrial belt into the upper northwest fare any better. The new capitalist turned speculator preceded him, engrossed the best lands and held them for a profit. The cause of the settler and that of the worker whom he left behind, they said, one and the same. He viewed the speculator as, quote, persons disposed to live out of the labors of others and who had established a petty aristocracy which was choking the tree of liberty and causing her leaves to wither so that her sons must endure the scorching rays and blasting influence of the slavery-making idol of money tyrants. Farmers, too, were slaves. For as George Evans reminded them, give me the air a man must breathe, the water he must drink, or the land from which he must draw his subsistence, and you give me the whole man. He must obey me and serve me or die. Now, regardless of the justice or the soundness of these attitudes, they were widely held by clergymen, intellectuals, members of the old substantial families who found new, no place in the new order, and by the many whose consciences still responded to the traditional values. What was happening did not accord either with their notions of democracy or of Christianity. Is it right, they asked, does it comport with the spirit of free institutions? Is it Republican? Is it American? Reacting to their own social economic condition, these men were talking about the worse than useless aristocrats and their abused and exploited slaves. They were saying things as harsh as truth and as uncompromising as justice. They were appealing to deeply ingrained convictions and laying the foundations for a wider moral crusade. The second locality in which powerful forces were at work generating attitudes that would play a fateful part in national life lay in the rural belt that stretched out 
of New England into Vermont and then westward across Upper New York and along the Great Lakes into the interior. It was a region primarily of farms and small towns, save where the Erie Canal had altered the pattern. Many of its farms, especially in New York, had been purchased from land companies or were being rented from large holders. Wheat, as the first great frontier cash crop, had by 1840 already crossed this region in its steady march westward. It had at first brought profits and had built at Rochester as a great milling center. But as it moved on into the further west, it had left disaster in its wake and the necessity constantly to shift crops. Land and market troubles thus always formed a disturbed background on which events moved. The land agents in Albany and the landlords near at hand kept them conscious of the fact that here also the living of the many was in the hands of the few. It would one day produce the anti-rent wars. But far more important than economic factors in shaping the attitudes of men in this region was the matter of sin. From the days of Jonathan Edwards, the revival meeting had followed migrating New Englanders in their westward trek. So constant and intent had been the revival fervor that Upper New York had become known as the burned-over district. Fed by a flow of young revivalists out of Yale and a steady flow of religious literature from societies in the older centers, men and women in this region set about with frightening earnestness to rid the world of sin and to usher in the millennium. The grim old Calvinistic doctrines of salvation only through election already sharply altered was here reduced to the simple matter of individual willingness to repent and to believe. Any man, they said, could, if he would, be freed of sin. Under the intense emotions stirred new revelations from heaven on golden plates were discovered and churches that would become a permanent part of American life were started. Churches that would give us secretaries of agriculture in later days. Committees were established where sin could not exist and the exact date when Christ would reappear and the world would come to an end was set as to day and as to year. Never in all American life was a more powerful moral force been set in motion or one more potent for good or for ill. The exaggerated concern with the individual soul, however, and belief that all evil resided there, kept this force for a time safely away from social reform. During the 1830s, however, this began to change. Hard times and a growing realization that revival methods had not brought the millennium turned many disillusioned souls in a different direction. They moved from the effort at general salvation to an attack on specific evils. The revivalist turned reformer. Saving society by removing sin from the individuals one at a time was too slow a process in this mad changing age. It might be better to concentrate on certain larger manifestations. With all the old crusading zeal, they turned on war, intemperance, injustice to women, Negro slavery, and a half a dozen other social evils. The growing improvement in communication under steam widened the scope of their efforts 
and made organization and propaganda on state and national lines possible. They turned reforming into a profession. A profession, however, that was the heir to all the techniques of the revival. The first efforts were scattered among several reforms, as I have said, but gradually anti-slavery took over. Slavery's sinfulness was most apparent. Those who practiced it, far enough removed to permit the imagination full play, <coughs> working largely through evangelical churches long familiar with the revival, young preachers turned reformers lighted the fires of freedom across New York and on into the upper Northwest. But it was the same old fight against sin. For slavery, they said, was always everywhere and only sin. Insist primarily on the sin of slavery was the instructions given to the Amer by the American Anti-Slavery Society to its agents, especially stirred up ministers and others <coughs> to the duty of making continual mention of the oppressed slaves in all social and public prayers. A movement that had begun as an effort to eradicate sin and to usher in the millennium in their own immediate neighborhoods was being broadened into one directed mainly at the institutions of a rival section. Yet the method had not changed. As the American Anti-Slavery Society told the great evangelist Theodore Weld when he became their agent, their ends were to be accomplished by showing the public that slavery was contrary to the first principles of religion, morals, and humanity, so as to produce a just public sentiment which will appeal both to the conscience and love of character of our slaveholding fellow citizens and convince them that both their duty and their welfare require the immediate abolition of sin and of slavery. In other words, these sinners were to first to be convicted of their sins and then led to repentance and salvation in the good old revival way. Furthermore, the agents were to be, to be, their work was to be carried on not among the slaveholders themselves, but among those churchmen in the upper north who now needed some emotional moral drive to take the place of the weakening revival movement. Now up until the late 1830s and early 1840s, the drives against wealth required by, uh, acquired by exploiting labor and against sin as the deterrent of the millennium were stirred, as we have said, primarily by local conditions. And the evils to be eliminated were those in the immediate surroundings. The appeal to action was based on democratic and Christian sentiments. In fact, many had begun to fuse the two and to think of their purposes as one. There is fast rising in New England, wrote George Bancroft, the historian, a moral democracy in harmony with Christianity, in harmony with the progress of civilization. Democracy is practical Christianity, he concluded. Said Samuel Allen, Christianity was intended by its divine founder to lend its powerful aid for the relief and enlightenment of the laboring classes and to change the existing political and econ economic relations of society. Democracy, said the Democratic Review, is the cause of humanity. It is the cause of Christianity, of which it has been well said that its prevailing spirit of democratic equality among men is its highest fact. And it was to a believer who rejoiced in the light of focalism as the outward sign of the inner light of Christianity 
that the historian of that movement dedicated his book. The hard times which came with the Panic of 1837 and its long drawn-out aftermath added another item to the Christian democratic values. The economic pinch enabled industrial capitalism to prove its superiority and to establish its dominance and to be widely accepted. It became the symbol of the modern age. Thus, progress in terms of cities, factories, and railroads became a part of the national manifest destiny so boisterously demanded. Henceforth, and please notice this, Christianity, democracy, and progress would go hand in hand in an aggressive drive that would not be considered aggression because it is not aggression to fight sin, to demand a more democratic order, or to encourage progress. Meanwhile, the bitter debates in Congress over the receiving of anti-slavery petitions and the use of the mails seem to indicate that the real danger to democracy, Christianity, and progress was to be found not at home, but in a rising slave power to the South. Looking about with an eye long trained to detect sinners, they began to shift the blame for what had happened to them and to the old America, to the aristocrats who lived below Mason and Dixon line in, line in idle luxury on the toil of abused and exploited Negro slaves, whose sinful ways ranged all up and down the list against which their moral crusades had already been launched. The South had expanded with cotton, but it had not altered its ways or its values. It was out of step with progress. It was holding back the rest of the nation. And the agricultural disaster that had overtaken the once prosperous wheat farmers of New England and Upper New York was the work of the slaveholder himself. Anti-slavery groups therefore resolved, quote, that the existence of slavery is the grand cause of the pecuniary embarrassments of this country, that no real or permanent relief is to be expected by the establishment of a national bank or a sub-treasury until the total abolition of this execrable system. Slavery must be destroyed, they insisted, or the agricultural, mechanical, manufacturing, and commercial interests of this country must perish. What had happened, as Eliza Wright said, was that the industrious North had trusted the slack-twisted financial honor of the South, and it had failed. Joshua Levitt went even further. His explanation was, quote, the system of society in a slaveholding community is such as to lead to the contraction of debts, while the system itself does not furnish the means of paying those debts. Masters were extravagant. Slaves were wasteful. So debts mounted, and the sense of obligation to pay is essentially different between people who always live on the earnings of the poor and those who have nothing but what they have earned by their own industry. The South, by its failure to meet its obligations, had taken from the North in the past five years at least $100 million in notes that will never be paid. So there was hardly a remote hamlet in the free states that has not been directly or indirectly drained of its available capital by the Southern debts. Slavery, he concluded, has been the prime cause of all the financial tornadoes that have swept over our country. It is the bottomless gulf of extravagance and thriftlessness. The thing
this was a situation that called for political effort was perfectly clear to anyone who observed the way in which the Democratic Party, under slave control, busied itself, as they said, perpetually with, exp with expedience to enhance the price of the products of slave labor and to open markets for them in all parts of the known world, while it studiously avoids doing anything to procure markets for the free products of the grain-growing Northwest. Wheat had lain unharvested for seven years in the fields of Upper New York, yet the slave-controlled government had done nothing to remove the iniquitous corn laws of Great Britain, which would have given them markets for their wheat. The answer came from a convention assembled in November 1839 in Warsaw in Upper New York, when the Friends of Abolition resolved that every consideration of slavery serves only to convince our minds that it involves all the worst features of the vilest sins which have be, committed, be committed either by individuals or by nations. With an appeal to all Christian freemen to support, they launched the so-called Liberty Party with James G. Burney of New York as their candidate for president and Francis J. Lemoyne of Pennsylvania for vice president. Soon afterward, their candidate declared that the government of the country was in the hands of a slave power, that the North, in relation to the South, is a conquered province. It was vain, he said, to think of, sincere, of a sincere union between North and South if the first remained true to her Republican principles and to her habits. <clears throat> they can no more be welded into one body than clay and brass. Then, having delivered himself of these sentiments, he departed for England, bearing with him a trunk filled with petitions from Upper New York asking for the repeal of the English Corn Laws. The Liberty Party itself did not play an important role in American politics. It never attracted a large following or gained a decisive vote. But it did reveal a drift in thought and action of profound significance. It was the first national third party and it carried into poli the political arena those powerful moral drives against sin and undeserved wealth which lay close to the surface in the thinking of thousands who still clung hesitatingly to the trouble-torn old political parties. It centered these drives on slavery as the fundamental cause of national disaster and national disgrace. As its leader said, where half of a government live by their own work and pay as they go, and the other half by others' work and by the longest possible credit, and where these halves are made by climate, a mighty pecuniary convulsion must hurl these two systems of labor and living into mortal conflict and must demolish the debases of all existing political parties and recast them in the mold of necessity upon all controlling principle of self-preservation. 